Hey, 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 everybody. Hi. Let me just make sure we are all... Hi. We are good. Welcome to a random critical Q&A midweek. Hi. Uh, this is being uh, a sort of uh, makeup show for having missed this weekend. I was really bummed to miss the critical Q&A this week, and it always kind of grates on me when I you feel like I deny you guys content. <laughs> so um, so here I am. I am definitely well and better, unfortunately. Uh, for those of you who keep track, um, uh, my wife, Melissa, is still a little under the weather, but she is getting better, and we are happy about that. So she's... Um, you know, kind of, kind of working away despite the illness, uh, as am I, although I'm not sick anymore. I was, mine was just a very short thing. I don't really get super, super sick very often, but, uh, anyway, yeah, so, uh, we're, we're good. We're all good here. And, um, okay. So I see, see questions already coming in. I had, um, I wanted to say that, um, I had a little intro for you guys because I just got something that I thought you guys might find kind of fun. Let me go ahead and uh, let's get the comments up there. There we are. Hey, all right, good. So now we can see what you guys are throwing up there too. So a while back, I talked a little bit about um, Scientology funerals and funeral services and marriage ceremonies and rituals and stuff as contained in this book. Now, this is a little bit, I thought we might start the show this week. Uh, I'm just going to jump right into it with a little uh, history, just a little bit, on Scientology, Church of Scientology, and its religious, well, I like to, I, you know, as Jeffrey Augustine sort of introduced me to the term, uh, religious cloaking, you know. Um, oh, great, Kevin. Thank you very much for your, for your Patreon support there. Uh, definitely, definitely appreciate the Patreon supporters, guys, really do. Makes all the difference. Actually, it's the only thing that really makes all this possible, just so you guys know. Um, okay, so uh, this this book right here represents, you can see how thin it is. I keep showing you the side here because I want you to see this thing is not a big book. This is the backgrounds and ceremonies of the Church of Scientology, a la 1970s, when they were trying to make a little bit of a push uh, for religious status in the world and all that kind of thing. They've had a, the Scientology's had a few different efforts in that direction over the years. In the 1960s, there was a push for this. Uh, in the, when they first got tax exemption in, in the uh, mid-50s, Hubbard was also kind of pushing that ministers would wear, you know, outfits and things like that, and they would start running around looking like, you know, Catholic priests or ministers or something. But then this book was published, and this was a sort of a collection in 1970 of the background and ceremonies of the Church of Scientology of California worldwide, because that was the organization that headed Scientology internationally. It was the worldwide, you know, uh, Church of Scientology of California, CSC. And this book was, um, was published, yeah, 1970, 1972. Here again, I think I've mentioned this before, here is where the Church of Scientology claimed, it's literally written right here, the Church of Scientology congregations are today measured in millions. Uh, no, they weren't, and they never have been, <laughs> unless you count, as John, <laughs> I think, um, oh, am I getting blurry on screen here? Uh, that might, okay, nope, I think I'm okay. Looks okay on my picture here. Yeah, it goes a little in and out because I'm moving and stuff, and I have a variable, uh, uh, what's the word, focus. Anyway, yeah, sorry about that. 
Um, I have to, yeah, there we go. It'll go in and out a little bit. I'll have to fix that. I just have been too damn lazy to just go adjust my camera on that. Um, my bad. So this book, in terms of its content, this is the book that had the wedding ceremony, funeral ceremony, naming uh, ceremony, and any other rituals connected with Scientology. And there weren't really that many others. Funeral service, I think I said. Um, yeah, weddings, naming, and funerals. And then there is the prayer day and the, for, and the prayer for human rights and some sermon suggestions. And that was about it. It was really kind of roll your own, figure it out. Here's some basic, basic material that you can use and a prayer that you can use in your Sunday services. And this was very rarely done. The entire time I was in Scientology, nobody was doing any of this stuff. Uh, until, <laughs> until this new edition of the same book came out. And you can see it's a little bit bigger and it's a lot heavier. This is the year 2000 edition of the Background Ministry Ceremonies and Sermons of the Scientology Religion. What is the difference between these two things and what is the deal with this? Somebody sent this to me, a viewer, a uh, subscriber sent this thing to me, and I just got it yesterday, so I couldn't wait to share it with you because um, I'd referenced this, but I didn't have a copy of it. As you can see, you know, this is a couple hundred dollars to buy this book. It's huge. It's got gold leaf. It's got beautiful book, you know, and uh, bits in there to keep your place. And the thing, I, the point, and it's got this great big cross on it here, the Scientology cross. And I wanted to highlight this for you guys in comparison to this thing because I wanted to show you um, <laughs> uh, what David Miscavige's version of religious cloaking looks like, right? If this is L. Ron Hubbard's, <laughs> this is David Miscavige. He wanted a great big book with gold. He wanted a book that looked like this big, impressive, it would sit on a rostrum or a, you know, or a, a pedestal or something, and, and people would be impressed by it and by its religiosity, right? Because it's huge. It's like these, you know, great big versions of the Bible that you see sometimes. So, um, so inside this book is a little bit more than a couple rituals and ceremonies, and one of the basic things that, have, that Miscavige changed about Scientology Sunday services is they have all the, um, the, the naming ceremonies, weddings, orations, etc., and the prayer. And all of those are broken down into different chapters now. They're not all just in one little chapter on a couple pages. It's like it goes on and on. In fact, we're up to page 134 before you're even done with the ceremonies. So you can see, kind of like L. Ron Hubbard's fiction work, they really made the text huge, right? The font size and the text, you can probably practically read it from there. Just for the purpose of filling this thing out, kind of like the great big fonts that are used when they publish the Mission Earth books, right? So that they would fill out 10 volumes of books. 
you guys are going on about Aronofsky. He's quite good, and I loved The Whale, but I'm not sure what the question was. Somebody asked me about that. Yes. Yes. Yes, hey, hon, I have seen The Whale, and I will comment on that movie, actually. Um, Okay, so this biblical text is then uh, added to by a bunch, I mean, probably 50, nah, maybe 20 or 30 different essays that were pulled out of Hubbard's works, out of his books and lectures, and they took those and turned them into sermons. So if you go to a Scientology church and you go to a Sunday service, you will be sermonized by L. Ron Hubbard's words. This was done so that people wouldn't have any initiative or creativity of their own at the local church level because Miscavige is going to take it all away from them. If they wanted to, before the year 2000, if they wanted to do Sunday services, they had quite a bit of latitude in what they could do. Not anymore. It's uh, pre-written sermons. Oh, boy, there are a bunch here. Oh, gosh, I think I was right. There's, there's over 100 sermons here. 500. It goes from page 151 to, 100, to 505, page 505. That's the last page of the last sermon. So 400 pages of L. Ron Hubbard in here sermonizing. And then you have chapter 13, the last part, which was the thing Miscavige added to the Sunday service, which is group processing. And group processing is something Hubbard developed in the 1950s to deal with not just one-on-one auditing or counseling, but to do an entire group of people all at once. And that is uh, an objective kind of processing. It's not really memory-specific so much as it's pointing around and stuff like that. And in fact, I thought I might give you a couple examples of that if you would like. Because we haven't really gotten into the specifics too much of how these processes work and what it looks like and feels like. And so I thought you might appreciate a little moment of that while we get going here. Um, here is an example of a group process. I'll just pull one at random here. And it, you can I'm flipping through just one. Here it is on perception. This is called uh, Perception. That's what the name of this whole group process is, and it goes on for pages. And we're not going to go through the whole thing even remotely. I just want to give you a little bit of a flavor of what it feels like. Um, Yeah, from Reckless Ben's videos, that's right. So there's a thing you act, that the minister is actually supposed to say, and they're supposed to get specially trained, by the way, in Scientology in order to be able to do this. This requires very specific special training to stand in front of a group of people and read this text to them, line by line, uh, command by command, and get everybody all the way through the pages and pages of this, which takes generally about half an hour to an hour to do. And there's a bunch of these things, all of this part of the book that I'm holding in front of you here. This is all group processing. So you can see kind of the emphasis here, right? Because let's, let's be real for a second. Before I give you these commands or, or show you this, this is transinduction. This is group control. Yeah, kind of. And we see shades of this in Sunday services all over the America. It's not like there isn't transinduction going on in Christian or other churches as well. 
But in Scientology, they never really had it perfected like this until this book came out in the year 2000. I am now going to do, so here's how it would go. I'm now going to do something that will benefit all of you. I am going to conduct a group processing session. The application of Scientology auditing is often done on a one-on-one basis. It is also done with a group of people, and each individual can personally benefit. Scientology auditing improves your condition as a spiritual being, increases your awareness, perception, and communication. With group processing, many individual benefits. Many individuals benefit at once. Each of you can attain new spiritual states of existence, states which lead to greater happiness, alertness, and potential. Oh, wow, I can increase my potential. Um, The commands or instructions of the group process I'm going to use today are very simple, but before I give you the first command, there are some terms in the commands themselves I want to ensure you all understand. Um. When I, yeah, and then he does, clears up a couple words and then says, as part of this process, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing many times over. All you have to do is follow the commands. This is the session, is how it starts. So it's a formal little auditing session. It's really the real deal. Uh, so here are some of the commands. And I'm not even going to pretend to be giving these to you. I don't expect any of you to be trying to comply with this. But here's how it would start. This is the session, and then to the entire group, let's find the floor beneath your feet. Let's find the floor. Is there a floor beneath your feet? You sure there is? Is there a floor beneath your feet? Come on now, don't be an only one. Some of you people that haven't been telling me so, is there a floor beneath your feet? Are you sure of it? Is it a floor? Is there a floor beneath your feet? You sure of it? Does it feel like a floor? Now, is there a floor beneath your feet? Are you sure there's a floor? Is there a floor? Is there a floor? Is there a floor? I am reading exactly what it says here. That's the first page of one, two, three, four, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Oh, my God. I haven't reached the end of it yet. This has now morphed over to, have you got feet? Have you got a head? Have you got feet? Have you got a head? Have you got feet? Have you got a head? This is going alternating back and forth like this. Oh, boy, what bodies? You got a head? Have you got a head? Have you got feet? Yeah, I'm serious. This goes on and on for pages. More pages. One Sunday service. One group processing session. There's the end. How'd you like to sit and endure that for an hour? When I say this stuff is crazy making, I ain't kidding. I really hope that gives a little tiny, eensy-weensy demonstration of what I've been talking about all this time. It's crazy making. And being in a room doing that, which I have done many times at the receiving end, there's just no words for for how stupid and crazy and numb you feel after doing something like that for an hour. 
So, uh, yes, that is exactly the kind of place where the say hello to the center of the earth, that would be a perfect group processing command that you would see probably somewhere in here. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so um, that's what I wanted to share with you guys a little bit there. And um, I thought you might appreciate a little glimpse into some actual, this is what it looks like and feels like, not just me, you know, describing it. All right. So Nan, and, and I just I thank you again, uh, my uh, loyal subscriber friend out there who sent me this. I very, very much appreciate it. She will remain anonymous. Okay. So now let's get into the Q&A. I've got some prepared questions, but let's see if we've got some questions coming in. Now, uh, Hayhan asked me this one, so let's go ahead and take this one up because I this is a question I'm actually very happy you're asking me. Have you seen The Whale, the movie, The Whale? I love Darren Aronofsky, and I know you're a movie guy. U.S. release was December last year, but in the U.K. it only came out yesterday. I'm going Thursday, can't wait. Okay, good. No spoilers. I will give you no spoilers whatsoever, and I will tell you that is one of the most impactful, emotional, and amazing, life-affirming movies I have ever seen. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Now, it is also a very hard movie to watch. There are um, the, the, the physicality of, um, of uh, Fraser's performance and, or, you know, Brendan's uh, performance and the difficulty with which, but, you know, that he had in the subject matter. It's pretty heavy stuff. There's a lot of um, conflict in this movie, and it's not violent or anything like that, but it is a very emotional ride. And it touches on a lot of stuff, including things I had no idea were coming in the middle of that movie. And I, I'm just going to do no spoilers here, so I'm not even going to say what that is. But there are a couple different character arcs going on in the movie that are quite interesting beyond the main character. And they contribute to and are part of that main picture, but they kind of have their own subplots as well. So... I can't, I can't recommend it enough. That when, when the night we got back, we watched it just a couple weeks ago, my wife and I. And when we got back from that, I mean, we, we were just bawling. I mean, it was so beautiful. And, and that's my reaction. I know everybody's not going to necessarily have that reaction, but I sure did. And um, I, I called my mom. I, call, I texted my friends. I was like, you all, everybody, you know, you guys really would enjoy seeing this. It's a very, very good movie. So... Uh, that's about all I can say and keep it spoiler free. I'd love to get into some more specifics about it, but, um, it's, uh, it, it really, ex it really dives deep into and, and unflinchingly into trauma and regret and, and life purpose and, and meaning and the meaning that we can instill in our lives and in the lives of others that we love or are close to us and the effects that we can have, good and bad, right and wrong. It, it touches on all that stuff in a pretty heavy way. I'm sure there's, with it being a Aronofsky movie, by the way, this is not a person, it's not a director that I follow really closely because some of his movies are pretty out there. And this probably has or could have lots of layers of interpretation and symbology and stuff like that also added in. The very title of the movie is very much a multi-layered title. There's a few depths to that title that you'll get as you, as you get into the movie. And... Um, it's just, yeah, it's just kind of one of those kind of movies. So if you're into that kind of stuff, I, I really can't recommend it enough. Okay, so let's carry on. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, 
Here's a good question. Frostfire64. Hey, Chris, it seems like the anti-Scientology YouTube space is growing lately. It is. How do you feel about it? Is more or less pioneer Scientology criticism on YouTube? Well, thank you. Um, I never really thought of myself as a, as a pioneer on this. But... Um, uh, I guess, you know, I mean, I've been having, I have been doing this for a while. I am happy that there are more content creators coming into the X cult and specifically Scientology space. I, um, you know, my thing, just between you, me, and the wall, right, is my thing is education. My thing is recovery. My thing is support. That's what I'm all about. And that's what this channel has always been about, my own recovery and trying to help anybody else uh, along the way. And, of course, that's led to me getting an education and now being able to consult with people. And I've been able to help people one-on-one -on -one with this beyond the YouTube content. And believe me, that is incredibly satisfying. Um, I wish there was more of that. I, you know, I'd like to get, I'd like to build up more of a clientele on that basis, but it's been amazing in terms of, um, so, so that's my thing. That's where I come from on this. And I, that's my view of, you know, the best kind of content is, you know, the stuff I think I'm putting out there, but the interviews and, and stories and, uh, information that is spread by other people in the space is very, very good and very, very needed. And, um, and if it, you know, and if it brings more attention and more um, activists to the, to the fight or it brings, it raises awareness to help more people stay away from this stuff, I'm down for that. That's what I'm all about. I will say that I have issues with, and I don't think it's any big secret, with the idea of using this topic as something to... Um, rile up people in, uh, you know, weird ways or be sensationalistic or salacious or, ooh, look at the latest scandal. It's like, let's, let's drown, let's, let's create a controversy. And, you know, this is bad enough as it is without that kind of celebrity media attitude being brought into it. That's my thing. I totally get that. Everybody's got their own take on what they want out of this. And for me, that's what I want is I want serious discussion. I want real recovery. I want people to get over their experiences with destructive cults in the best way possible for them and their lives and their family. And I want, um, and I want these cults to, you know, be taken down when they are abusive, destructive, you know, bad things. Um, and I don't think, you know, treating it as a looky-loo train wreck, ooh, let's look at the latest nonsense with this is the best way to go about it. But that's... Like I said, that's just my thing. So, um, so that's my plus and minus on that question. You, you know, that's kind of my initial thoughts on it. All right, let's carry on. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Okay. Um, Kevin Zay asks, what's your take on the current situation with Russia and Ukraine? I kind of think we're still at a point where things could spill over into full NATO involvement. Um, well, obviously I have to, uh, you know, preface this with, I am no expert in international foreign relations or, or anything like that. Um, but I do pay attention to things that these countries are doing. And of course we've done podcasts on China and stuff like that. So I try to dip my, my fingers in that enough to be aware of what's really going on versus the, you know, kind of nonsense you get from certain media sources. And I think that it is a, um, I think it's complicated. I think there's a lot of layers to this that even Americans don't really understand. You start digging in a little bit into Ukrainian history and the whole Russian history and all the, the backstory of it, and it's just, oh, my God, it never ends. 
Uh, could it spill over into full NATO involvement? I sure as hell hope not. I don't think our current leadership is at all interested in that. America seems to be incredibly interiorized right now into all of our own problems, which we won't stop bitching and moaning and complaining about. And um, and that's fine. You know, I don't particularly want to be the world's policeman. I don't think that's our role. Uh, it shouldn't shouldn't be. But as far as uh, you know, how I think it's, I, I don't, I'm not good at predictions on how it's going over there. I don't really know enough to be able to say accurately. Oh well, here's what I think is going to happen. I just hope my my own personal views is I hope that we do not escalate and that we do not start putting you know anything like troops on the ground or or uh, any kind of you know big NATO involvement in this. If this becomes that kind of situation where Russia escalates and then NATO gets stepping in and all these European countries you know and obviously us as the head of that or leader of that. Um, you know, go in there, it's it's not going to be good. That's not a good, that's not, I don't think that's a good resolution to this particular problem. And uh, I think Russia is already on its way out, you know, in at full speed, uh, at mock speed. You know, Russia is, uh, Putin and, and the leadership over there is, you know, some of the most corrupt <laughs> folks on the planet. It's really bad. It's really bad. So, um, so I don't think there would be any long extended military action if, if NATO got involved even, but I don't want to go anywhere near any of that. And that's my very layman view on that stuff. So, uh, thanks for asking, Kevin. I don't know if that helps at all, but that's just some of my thoughts on it. I'm wide open for more information on that topic. I only know, you know, this much compared to what there is to know on it. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Atypical Paul asks, do you think consciousness is fundamental or emergent? I believe consciousness is an emergent property of of the brain system, of the of the neural network in our brains. Uh, that's what I think. Uh, as a, you know, kind of a simple idea, a simply stated idea. I don't think um, consciousness is located, in other words, in some specific area of our brain that we haven't yet figured out. I think it's the entire system that comes together biologically to create what we experience as consciousness. Right, the voices in our mind, the pictures in our head, the the memories that we have, the, our our sense of self, our sense of who we are, what we are, how we feel. You know, there's a there's an intero there's a word interoception, which is your internal registry, your brain's uh, sort of awareness of its of its of, of the body state, and um, between interoception and exterior perception, right, coming in from outside. You combine these things and are constantly reevaluating your current situation, your location, your your position, your social standing, your you know your your feelings, uh, your body state has a lot to do with that. All of these come together; they're they're all a whole system, and it extends beyond just you. When we talk about consciousness, because your consciousness, your ability to um, 
understand the world and relate to it and, uh, and you know, and sort of uh, your awareness of self and awareness of the environment and all that. I'm trying to sort of fumble through some various ideas of what consciousness even is because the truth of the matter is nobody's got a definition for that word yet that actually fits across the boards, just like the word emotion. This, these are very, very heated and debated topics. Um, so this is just my thinking on this, but I look at the concept of emergent properties. Uh, this is a fascinating thing. The sum of the parts of a thing can be greater than the whole. You can get properties and behaviors and activities out of a, out of a thing that you wouldn't necessarily expect just looking at the parts of it. Uh, if you were to, if you had no idea what a car does and somebody just you know, threw all the parts at you, that wouldn't necessarily be very enlightening, but you put it all together and suddenly you're like, all this stuff on the ground put together a particular way makes it, makes me able to go a hundred miles an hour down the road. Well, that's not very obvious from just looking at the pieces. Kind of same with consciousness. It's not obvious from looking at neurons and neurochemicals and, and the whole body that consciousness is going to, you know, self-awareness is going to come out of this, but that's kind of in a way the miracle of life and and consciousness i believe is a spectrum thing just like everything else i think you know animals have some form of self-awareness and and uh, self-knowledge and and an external perception and they put all that together to form a, a continuing uh, awareness of of uh, their position in things in in life and and the world so that's how I think it works, basically. Uh, I don't think of it as, a, as there being some separate dualism. There's some spiritual entity or separate thing from the body. I think the body and the environment is what creates who you are. That's what I think. And, um, and that's my answer to your question. Uh, okay. Oops. Um, okay, let's get that off of there. Okay, good. All right. Um, this is great. Um. Oh, Shimoda asks here, in countries where Scientology does weddings and where same-sex marriage is legalized, how do they get out of doing them? I'm assuming they wouldn't want to. Has it been tried? No, because there's no homosexual LGBTQ Scientologists, uh, at least not any that I've seen ever who were going to go get married in a church of Scientology. They, they, their refusal of that would be very simple. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, it would be that easy for a Scientology minister, for the church staff to just go, yeah, no, we're not doing that. And if it became an issue and somebody really, uh, there was a, you know, because uh, the only, you know, for the, except for maybe John Travolta, <laughs> And I'm and I really have my tongue in my cheek on that because I don't know John Travolta's sexual proclivities. I believe he's probably bisexual, but I, I don't know. But beyond him, LGBTQ is not something that you're going to get a big lot of approval on in Scientology. And, and it only really exists at the lowest levels before they're really, really, really working on converting you out of that. Right. And they want to audit the gay away. They want that gone. They consider it psychotic and they consider it evil. And that, that if you are uh, in the LGBTQ ban, that you are 1.1, you are covert hostility as an emotional tone, and you are basically um, out of valence is another term they use. Um, there's a lot of labels they have for that. None of them good. But as far as marriages go, they'd just be like, yeah, no, we're not doing that. 
You know, we don't support that. We're not doing that. And it would be quite interesting, kind of like maybe the cake thing, if somebody tried to make them do it. But Scientology doesn't do non-Scientologist weddings either. They're not, they're not offering their services to non-Scientologists when it comes to those kind of, of services, at least not generally speaking. All right. Um, cool. Thank you, guys. All right. Yeah, going through the book. <laughs> okay, I'm just still back in the comments. Um, oh, okay, so this is silly. Okay, there we go. Let's see. Go back up. Yes, yes, yes. Good. Um, Tim, can you clarify your question for me here? Why hasn't there ever been a Scientologist rebellion? What, 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 at what level and what do you imagine that would look like? I want to make sure I understand your question so I can answer it. Um, okay. Jonathan Perry, I've been wondering what would happen in an extinction event where there were no more bodies for Thetans to occupy. They can't get past the implant stations or soul catchers. Um, well, remember, it would be the same thing as what happened after the whole Xenu narrative. I mean, Earth was a desert wasteland, according to L. Ron Hubbard, for centuries and millennia after, you know, 76 trillion years ago or a million years ago after uh, Xenu had his, uh, you know, galactic genocide right here on Earth. So we've already all kind of been through that. You just float around. You just you just in a you know sort of oh well whatever. And if it was an extinction level event, like we had some meteor come down and you know violently kill everybody, like the you know in the Yucatan Peninsula asteroid which killed off all the dinosaurs, you know if something like that happened, it'd be quite traumatizing. There'd probably be more. According to Scientology theory, I'm answering this question, not reality. The reality is this doesn't have anything to do with anything. But the Scientology answer to this is. That the Thetans would, that there would be an awful lot of people who would be so traumatized they would re-cluster even harder into into collections of body Thetans, um, and the ones who didn't do that, who had all the body Thetans glommed on them, would just be wandering the planet and the space and the in the you know the environment. Uh, maybe being a rock or something or a blade of grass or some other life form or just wandering around trying to figure out what the hell just happened to them and taking millennia and millennia to do it because there's no bodies to go occupy until evolution picks up and bodies pick up again. And that's apparently what happened between Xenu and us. And that would just happen again. All right. Um, boy, boy, boy. Okay. Yeah. Ah, uh, Shimoda, have you seen the film? I can't even say that word. Koyanakatsi? No, I have not. I, I've never even heard that word before. Um, okay. Carry on here. Yes, definitely looking for the fall of Scientology. Oh, is Mike starting a YouTube channel? That would be interesting. Okay. All right, here's an interesting question. Are there people that look for and follow leaders that have radically hateful views, us versus them? Are those leaders just saying things that the followers think but are afraid to say out loud? Yeah, of course, absolutely. Um, maybe more specifically, I could say that it, it, is, a, it is a truism that 
People are not necessarily looking for messages of hate, but they are looking for targets for their issues and problems. They are looking for reasons why their life isn't the way it should be as according to their own assessment. And if they feel that uh, fate, karma, or society has done them a bad, they want a target. They want somebody to blame, and they don't want to blame themselves. And it's not always their fault anyway. Sometimes conditions in the economy and the environment at your job and your family are just suck ass and you got the blunt end of the stick and that sucks. I mean, it does. We've, how many of us have, have you know, not been there? We've all experienced the unfairness of life. Well, some people can't get past it and can't get over it and they can't think their way through it. They just want a target. And here comes Joe Politician or Joe Social Media Influencer or Joe Speaker or whatever who recognizes that this is a truism amongst people and that they can gain power and influence by riling people up around that concept of let's blame these guys for our problems. Let's not solve our problems. Let's not figure out how to figure out this problem. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. We're going to go kill these motherfuckers who caused this problem in the first place, and somehow that's going to make it all better. That is a very easy message to uh, propagate to human beings. Uh, It just is, you know, because people want to blame somebody other than themselves. And, um, And again, right or wrong, good or bad, whatever, you know, sometimes they're right in blaming external sources, and sometimes they are very, very wrong. That's not really the point. The, the rightness or wrongness of it doesn't figure into this equation. Somebody can come along and convince you it's these guys' fault, and that's all you need to hear because it's way less effort to blame them than it is to think through all the things you've done or you've contributed to or the situation is what it is, and you got to figure your way through it. But you can't solve it. You can't figure your way through it. So... Here's what I can do. I can go take a pitchfork and shove it in this guy's face. I can do that much. I can't solve my, you know, uh, whatever the problem is, my economic problem, my financial problem, my psychological problems, whatever. But I can sure do this. And if somebody feels they can do something, you know, that's that's gives them, that is empowering, literally empowering. And it makes them feel stronger, better, entitled, the whole us versus them. And, um, you know, and are those leaders just saying things that the followers think but are afraid to say out loud? Sometimes. Sometimes, yes, absolutely. And other times the, follow- the leaders are saying things that they want the followers to think. And they get the followers to go along because they don't think too much about it because here's an easy answer to their issues, problems, etc. Okay. All right. Uh, (laughs) Bearded heretic. What's your most controversial psychological opinion? You're not a behaviorist, are you? (laughs) No, I am not. Um, My most controversial psychological opinion. Um, Probably that conscious. Actually, I mean, my mind goes immediately to that answer I gave a little bit ago about consciousness. This is a... I, you know, this is a very hotly debated topic. 
the the subject of consciousness and who we are and what we are at our at our most fundamental level is is a very unanswered question with a lot of a lot of very educated guesses and and people throwing their hat in the ring on that one and so my whole concept of you know it, of consciousness being an emergent property of a brain neural network system is not unique to me at all i didn't invent that idea but it is very very controversial especially with people who have very strong religious beliefs and who who feel that dualism the the concept of mind and and body and that these are two separate distinct things or spirit and body um you know they they got a lot of arguments to make against uh the concept of uh consciousness simply being an emergent property of a of a neural system so i you know that to me that's kind of controversial um you know, otherwise I would, because I do believe that behaviorism has some points to it, but Skinner was off the rails. I think it was him when he said that, um, you know, you give me anybody who's like three or four years old and I'll turn them into whatever you want. Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy, I'll make them into whatever you want. Not without destroying them, you won't. Not without turning them into something that's not even human anymore. Will you do that? That is just not true at all that, that Skinner could do that. And, uh, and that's where I very, very much part ways with, uh, with that whole behaviorist thing. At least that's what I've read and understand about some of the claims made in that particular uh, time. So, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's an answer. Maybe not my best one, but it's the one I can think of off the top of my head here. Oh, sure. Okay, Holly Everett asks. I'm just going down the line now. Um, can you explain the Scientology principle, the dynamics of existence, and how it relates to decision-making in Scientology as in the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics? Absolutely. This is really actually very pretty simple. Um, L. Ron Hubbard divided uh, the experience of life or the, the components of life into eight different parts or spheres of activity. And it's, a, and, it's, and it's best modeled as a series of concentric circles, starting with you, just you, yourself, and you in the middle, and your awareness of you and your concepts of you and you trying to take any action, any activity that is just solely for you, that's in the middle. That's first dynamic. Second dynamic is, is the same kind of thing, but it involves your immediate family and the sexual act and kids and reproduction and, and growing a family. And that's the second dynamic. Um, so anything having to do with sex and progeny and, and raising kids and all that, that's all second dynamic. Now, third dynamic is groups, groups you're part of. Anything, you know, you can see this is expanding out in size and scope. Starts you, family, groups your job a hobby group bowling team you know gaming club um whatever whatever groups you're part of sports team that's your third dynamic those are all considered or talked about as third dynamics that's a that's a third dynamic i'm part of is that sports team um but but all the groups you're part of together collectively would be considered your third dynamic fourth is mankind as a whole fifth is life forms as a whole sixth is all matter energy space and time as a whole all of it um trying to survive through it and as it that is kind of the concept of a dynamic it is it is an effort or energy through which you are um putting or investing in order to survive in this particular sphere of life. 
So matter, energy, space, and time is something we create, modify, and destroy all the time. Any activity connected with, say, building a house, fixing your car, um, mowing the lawn, uh, you know, reorganizing your room, any, anything having to do with stuff, that's going to be sixth dynamic kind of activity. Seventh has to do with spirits. Uh, spiritual beings or spiritual entities and eighth the eighth dynamic the big final one uh the allness of all is the god dynamic or infinity or um you know that that kind of concept of the allness of all so you go from you know yourself all the way out to everything and when it comes to decision making in Scientology, the basic concept is you're supposed to operate on the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics. What action should you take right here, right now, that would uh, best benefit the most number of dynamics in any equation? It's a utilitarian kind of philosophy and uh, or, you know, uh, ethics system and the truth of the matter is that most Scientologists really only think mostly on first, second, and third. And they don't really go too far beyond third of Scientology. The, 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 most, the main group that they're concentrated on when they do their equation is Scientology. Um, and I don't mean that in terms of whether they're, you know, thinking about staying or leaving. That's, that's a kind of a different thing. I mean, Scientology factors as the most important group of all the, of all the groups they're part of. That is said over and over again in the materials of Scientology. It is definitely put on a pedestal above any other group you're part of. And any Scientology staff member or Sea Org member will readily tell you that if you're not thinking that way, you are out ethics and off the rails. Because Scientology is more important than life itself, according to L. Ron Hubbard. Because it explains all of life. That was his reasoning. So that's how Scientologists think about it. So in the equation they run in their head, see that the scale has already been tipped in Scientology's direction by Hubbard's words and staff members' insistence that if you're not factoring in Scientology as the mainline consideration in your decision-making process, then you're off the rails. Right? If it benefits Scientology, it is automatically good and the best thing to do, and you must do it. And if it maybe isn't so great for Scientology, but it's really good for you or for your family, like if it's the choice between buying a couple intensives of auditing or getting a new car, well, clearly the most pro-survival thing for you is doing the Scientology, even though numerically speaking, your first, second, and third, your other third dynamics, your job, your sports teams, your hobbies are all benefited by you buying a new car. But look, the auditing is going to benefit all the dynamics, right? Because, you know, in this delusional view of auditing being the senior activity of all of life, because it's the only thing that's going to restore your spiritual abilities, nothing else compares to it. So nothing else can even begin to hold a candle to it because the scales have already been tipped in Scientology's direction. So that's kind of how it works for real in Scientology, at least in the setting that you know, 27 years I was in. So hope that answers that. All right. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I would appreciate a link or anything, actually, if you want to send this to me, uh, Anthony, because I'm not familiar with the Ant Hill kids. Uh, he asked here, what do you know about the Ant Hill kids? I think they're the most terroring 
terrifying violent cults I've studied, I'm going to have to check that out now because I'm, I've heard of that, but I'm not at all familiar. I could not even begin to, to tell you what, what, that's, what that group is about. So many groups out there, by the way. Um, I always feel I always feel a little little guilty. I always feel a little bit uh, when I when somebody asks me about a specific group or cult that I've never heard of before. Um, but that guilt quickly goes away when you realize that there's probably something on the order of about ten thousand cults out there. May, well, I think Hassan says five. Let's go with five. Five thousand destructive cults in the world at large, and uh, and they're changing and growing every day. All right, so uh, yeah, don't know about those guys. Okay, Jennifer asks, how far from the U.S. implementing more coercive control laws like those in the U.K.? I kind of wish I knew, I because um, I'm not really on the legal activism front, other than sort of you know reporting on some things that go on with Scientology legally. I would really like to be um, be part of a uh, of an effort to do more with that, but my schedule really doesn't allow for it. So I'm not sure. I know New Jersey had put forward some uh, coercive, uh, undue influence kind of laws having to do, I think, with domestic violence. Um, And that tends to be the way that it goes in, at least in the UK, it went in. It's a domestic violence thing. And it hasn't been applied or even really thought much about, uh, in a practical sense, bringing those laws to bear against cults or cultic activity. But I could absolutely and easily see a path that that could happen when you take people like a Larry Ray or somebody, you know, some kind of little little tiny group thing, like a Nexium thing. You could do something like that and uh, go to town with a law like that. And I would love to see that. So I'd like to... Um, to see that happen, but I'm not aware of much happening yet in the U.S. in regards to that kind of legislation. We need we need people who who really like I am kind of serious about trying to put information out there about you know recovery and and uh, intervention and helping people out of these things. We need people doing that same full time kind of work on these legal fronts. And I know there are people out there who do this kind of work, but I'm probably not as connected with them as I could or should be. All right, carry on here. Is there such a thing as an awareness of awareness unit? Uh, I don't think so, but L. Ron Hubbard sure did. <laughs> I don't even know where he came up with that expression. This is, L, this is one of L. Ron Hubbard's expressions for a thetan or a spiritual being, is an awareness of awareness unit. It's something that's self-aware, which is a very, very silly thing to do because all of life is self-aware to one degree or another. Otherwise, it wouldn't be life. So to you know, consider that uh, to define a thetan as an awareness of awareness unit is a little silly because Hubbard really only talked about thetans in regards to occupying you know, human bodies for the most part. Anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't think there is such a thing. Um, okay. Steve Wood, yes, you can ask anything regarding Scientology. Yes, you can. I, um, I had one of your questions, Steve, in the queue for, uh, for polling today, but we're getting so many good questions in the comments, I'm not even getting to it yet. So go ahead and throw it in the uh, comment section if you want to. Ha! Um, <laughs> <laughs> good one, X Sion. Let's throw that up there for everybody to take a look at. Love, good joke. All right. Um, get what you deserve. 
Oh, Mike. Oh, okay. Mike announced last night on Mark's channel he is about to begin a YouTube channel with Leah. Fantastic. How interesting. How interesting with Leah. That's great. Huh. Cool. All right. Um, all right. Yeah, exactly. Sounds like the Fair Game podcast returning, but a YouTube format. That's exactly what I thought. Because um, I don't know what the problem is. I'm not privy to and haven't, you know, gone and dug in to find out what the problem is with getting their podcast back on. But clearly something's screwing up the mix. So it'll be great if they could get that going again on YouTube. Okay. Um, ha! <laughs> Hopey. Okay. Thanks, Shimoda, for the clarification on that. Um Okay, here's the clarification on that rebellion question earlier from Tim. Why can't good public Scientologists stand up and say we don't want disconnections anymore or so many expensive sex checks, etc.? All religions change over time to stay alive. Um, because, Tim, you have a group of people. This is so important to get, so thank you for asking this. You got to understand out there that people in the world of Scientology do not think about the things that are being done to them as abusive. They believe with all their heart that everything they are going through in the Church of Scientology is either deserved or necessary for their spiritual attainment, for their spiritual growth, and for the attainment of OT, operating Thetan, right, being cause. And there's a lot of tons of thought-stopping cliches that shut down their thinking so they don't have to think too much or too hard about the conditions they are in or what's being done to them. Every single Scientologist will complain about the pricing and, the, and how they are constantly in debt and constantly under the water on their bills and all of that. They're very hyper aware of that because it stops them from doing Scientology services because they can't pay for anymore or borrow anymore. So that is very, very much a point that Scientologists will agree is a problem, but they know that they, or they sorry, they feel <laughs> that they are getting uh, pearls for pennies. They, they feel like the auditing that they're receiving is so great, so amazing, and potentially is going to give them immortality. I can't stress enough the power of that. That is a very, very powerful belief. And if, and if people are 100% sure that you have the key to the kingdom, well, look, this is, this is even something that happens in other religions. I mean, how much money do people give to televangelists in the Christian world or even in, in other worlds, other religious spheres? How much money changes hands to buy that ticket to heaven, to buy that spiritual salvation? Scientology is really not a whole lot different from that. It's just a very closed system. And the, and the belief set is a little different from what we see out of, um, you know, Bible thumpers and believers. So it's, it's not really the, 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 the thinking isn't that different. You know, it's kind of like if you were to ask me, how come... You know, all of Joel Osteen's people don't call him out for being the, you know, scumbag televangelist con man that he is because they're too busy rapturously believing every word he says and, and thinking that their spiritual immortality and their, their, their fate or karma, so to speak, depends upon them listening, understanding, and applying the things that this preacher or, or thought leader is telling them. 
that's the whole dynamic of the cult follower and leader is the leader gives the direction. The leader is the one who who sets all the conditions, makes all the rules, and the follower's job is to follow them. And Scientologists are forced into a compliant state of mind through a series of actions taken on them that they didn't ask for and there is no informed consent on. The transinduction, the hypnotism, the repetitive mantras, the thought-stopping cliches that are installed, the blatantly false information they are given about science and history and and everything all of that contributes to a mindset of unthinking loyalty and compliance and that is basically the problem with destructive cults it ain't the belief set it's what they're doing with it and that's that's the best answer i can give you on that is that's why you will not see that kind of revolution is because they believe that everything happening to them basically is necessary and important cuz Ron Hubbard says so Dave Miscavige says so all the staff say so their friends say so their family often says so you see there's a lot of social pressure here it's not just an individual you know being stupid sometimes it is but often it is an incredible amount of pressure on the person to continue to believe this. And as we talked about uh, recently, um, you know, with, with brainwashing and stuff, that group pressure is not an insignificant thing. It's powerful. So my short, you know, my, my immediate answer to that, you let me know what you think of that, Tim. Um, oh, God, yes. Okay, bearded heretic. Great question. Do you think the... Um, Oh, I see your super chat, Bo. Sorry, I missed it until now. I'll get to that. Bearded Heretic, do you think the overuse of narcissism is negatively impacting identification of true abuse in relationships? You're goddamn right it is. Listen, you cannot be calling everybody you disagree with a narcissist and think that you are going to, you know, you're water, it waters down the term. And I, 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 to my shame, right, I have contributed to that. And that's why you don't see me using that word a whole lot anymore. And I, and I have switched over to non-diagnostic terms because that's kind of important. I realized in watching the misuse and abuse of these terms, you know, calling anybody lying to anybody is now called gaslighting. Bullshit. That is not what gaslighting is. Anybody who has an attitude or an ego or who says something self-serving is suddenly a narcissist. That, that, is, that, that is like comparing the, the, the Titanic to a rowboat in terms of magnitude of what you're talking about. A narcissist, narcissistic personality disorder is not a, a, an insignificant diagnosis. It is, it is an entire life thing for the person who has it, who, who, is, who is a narcissist. And it's, you know what I mean? So I, anyway, you guys obviously get this. So... You know, negative, negatively impacting identification of true abuse. It, it must because you cannot water down these terms and have them being bandied about and accusations made about them and not have false identifications, right? Not have uh, a bad uh, relationship problems as a result of that, right? Um, amongst other things, right? Plus, then you get people who are themselves narcissistic for real, who will then use these terms against other people, right, and contribute to the whole problem. So, yeah, I definitely think that that is a problem, and I think we need to pull back the rein, whoa, whoa, on um, the way overuse of diagnostic uh, terminology in the common discourse. It's, it's inevitable, it's unstoppable, I know, but I, you know, that's my view on it.
Okay. Oh, this is a great question. I can answer this. Uh, Juliana, question from Mark and Mike's live last night. What's the difference between us, functioning Thetans, and BTs? Neither of them could answer. Okay, that's not a problem. Um, So, you and I, us, are... uh, Oh, hey, wow, it's already been an hour. Cool. Um, You, me, you're a Thetan. Okay, Here's, here's here's the breakdown. You, at your core, according to Scientology, are a Thetan a spiritual entity, an awareness of awareness unit. You have been bipping around in the universe for four quadrillion years in this universe. All of us have. And that's when we all came here. And uh, in all that time, you have been up and down, back and forth, round and round, had billions and billions and trillions of lives, living, uh, you know, doll bodies, mechanical bodies, human meat bodies, other meat bodies, other organic organisms, in fact, uh, it, it, you know, that kind of thing, right? That's all, um, that's just you. That's just what you've been doing all this time. And that would be a functioning Thetan, so to speak. You're functioning. You're alive. You got a body. You're running it. You have some degree of self-awareness, some degree of causality in your life. Body Thetans don't. Body Thetans have suffered a collective trauma that has forced them to collect together, to band together, to stick together on you. And that collection of body thetans are individual beings or spiritual entities just like you, but they've basically been semi-conscious, unconscious, and relegated into almost non-existence in this really horrid state, this sort of coma-like state, for millennia. They haven't been bopping from body to body to body. They've been sticking on a thetan, you. I guess. I mean, it's a little, see, it's a little weird because it's kind of like, well, do you get the body thetans when you get a body or do you get the body thetans and you carry them from life to life? It's a little unclear. At least to me it is. But but what a body thetan is, is crystal clear. It's it's exactly that. It's, a, it's an unconscious uh, or semi-conscious and very fucked up <laughs> thetan. And, um, and the clustering comes because of the collective trauma, right? Um, that's, that wasn't just the Xenu incident, by the way. Hubbard makes reference to the fact that body thetans existed before Xenu, uh, that that phenomena of thetans experiencing a collective trauma, uh, you know, and then clomping together was something that was known about before Xenu was even around, if I'm remembering the, the scriptures of Scientology properly. But that would be the best answer I could give you to that question. Um, okay, here's the super chat. Thank you very much, Bo, for this. If you could say anything to DM, what would you say? Wow, that's a good question. I should have thought of something about that long ago. What would I say to DM if I had one thing I could say to him? <laughs> you suck. <laughs> um, God, I'm going to have to think about that one. Maybe I'd ask him where Shelly is. <laughs> I think it would depend a little bit on the situation, to be honest. 
if I was on camera or something like that, you know, it would be a bit of a different thing if I was in a room with them by, by ourselves. Um, I'd probably just speak honestly from the heart about, you know, how my experience with it uh, very, very briefly and tell him that I, um, I really think he, you know, should maybe rethink his ways or something, you know, but I'd probably have a few more questions for him really than, than statements. I don't think, I don't think David Miscavige is somebody who's going to deconvert or change his mind or anything because of anything I say to him. So I'd, you know, if I had the, if I had my druthers, I'd probably want to ask him questions more than uh, make statements to him. And it would probably be questions along the line of, um, you know, what, how, what's, what, what are you doing? What, where are you taking this? What is this all about? Where are you trying to go with this? You know, and, and if I could get honest answer to them out of him, that would be pretty insightful stuff. But David Miscavige is probably incapable of telling the truth anyway. So, um, oh, Juliana, Mike said, maybe Leah, he was more testing than actually announcing. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Got it. All right. Um, Shimoda, whenever I've put stuff on YouTube about the cult I was in, they get it removed pretty quickly through reporting it. What's your secret to avoid this? There are also litigious. I, I don't know. I got no idea, Shimoda. I have no idea why the Church of Scientology basically ignores me. But as I've said from day one, I don't, I'm down. I'm okay with that. I don't know. And I don't know that reporting my videos or trying to target or harass me that way would work anyway. Because, you know, YouTube isn't just some... I mean, YouTube's kind of a bureaucratic, monolithic system, to be sure, in many ways. <laughs> but <laughs> the reporting system has been something that they've been working on for a long time. And there are tons of people out there, thousands of people out there, if not more, maybe tens of thousands at this point, who have overtly, blatantly abused the reporting system for exactly that kind of reason. And YouTube knows that. So I think that they have some safeguards in place to, to keep people up who should be up. However, I'm well aware of the fact that people's uh, channels have been taken down wrongly or they have been falsely accused and got away with it. You know that I know that happens. Why that doesn't happen to me, I don't know. I don't really care a whole lot because I don't pay a lot of attention to Scientology's antics. Um, uh, you know, my job here is to do the best job I can telling you guys the truth as I see it and share my experiences with you. And um, so far, that's been successful. And, uh, you know, the, so I, think, I think the answer to the question really is that they're too, way too fucking busy with bigger fish to fry than me. You know, I'm, I'm not a major thorn in Scientology's side compared to Mike Rinder or Leah Remini. And so all of their focus and attention goes on Mike, Leah, um, the legal cases they have. That, you know, that is a lot of work on the part of the Office of Special Affairs to manage and control the network of spies and PIs and lawyers and all the crap they've, that whole machine they've built to harass and, and, and uh, annoy and cyberbully and all the rest that they do. But they have to limit their targets. They've only got so much time and attention to spend on these things. And I'm just not that influential to them. 
right? In the same way they, you know, I mean, Aaron's gone over 100,000 views uh, or subscribers on his channel and they leave him alone too. And he's producing daily content about it. So, you know, I don't know. Probably because they've got bigger fish to fry as David Miscavige sees it. And that's, that's I think, the real answer to the question. All right. Um, oh, Will, Will Philify, what is a behaviorist? Okay, well, let's just take a look. Behavioralism. Behavioralism, which was one of the dominant approaches in the 1950s and 60s in psychology, is the view that the subject matter of... Oh, nope, nope, nope. That's not... This is a political science definition. Sorry. Yeah, this is it. An example of behaviorism is when teachers reward their class or certain students with a party or special treat at the end of the week for good behavior throughout the week. The same concept is used with punishments. The teacher can take away certain privileges if the student misbehaves. So what we're looking at with behavioralism is the concept of, yeah, the study of how behaviors come about in response to stimuli in the environment. If I poke you with a needle, what do you do? If I reward you, what do you, what do, you do? If I reward you with you know, sugar, what do you do? If I reward you with healthy food, what do you do? If I punish you with these various things, what do you do? Based on certain stimuli, a behavioralist believes he can create any outcome or effect uh, or tries to figure out how to create certain outcomes or effects by goading, pushing, rewarding, and punishing um, the subject matter and uh, the subjects. And so human beings are not quite that push-pull, push-button kind of uh, organisms, right? Our free will does exhibit itself in, in interesting and random ways. And so I don't go all in on behavioralism, but it was the dominating theory of psychology and a lot of study being done in the 50s and 60s around that concept of how do we um, handle people, deal with people. And this, by the way, was the time period that Hubbard came up in with Dianetics and really grew Scientology, was sort of responding to and, and advocating against that kind of thinking. And uh, that's why Hubbard would say things like, you know, man's not a push-button stimulus response, you know, organism kind of thing, but the reactive mind kind of turns him into one. And, you know, that was his sort of solution to this. Um, it, you know, it's not, the, 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 the thing I can say about it is, yeah, there's a lot of things to learn in behavioralism that, are useful in some fashion or another, but the mistake is made when people go all in on it and think that's all there is to uh, behavior or, um, you know, what drives or motivates us. We are not just driven by punishment and reward. There is a lot more going on with human beings than that. And that's where psychology was missing the boat back then. So that's what I can say about that. Um, All right. You know, I'm having so much fun with this. Why don't we just kind of keep going? How are we doing here? Well, we got we got enough folks watching. I think we can continue doing this. Let's go for a bit longer. Weird question. Was your office on LRH Way, the small CLO building, recessed back from the road next to AOLA? Yes. Excuse me. Yes, it was. It was the CLO building. It was located kind of behind and adjacent to the advanced org. 
Um, what was it for the hospital? What departments were in there? Oh, I don't know. I, I have no idea what that building was when it was a hospital complex. I, I never even found out. Sorry, uh, that there's the question there. Sorry about that one. I, I don't know. I never, you know, I did find out over at ASHO, um, you know, the bottom level where the captain's office is, that used to be the morgue. <laughs> when we first went in there before innovations, they still had the scale in place for weighing the dead bodies. That was quite, so literally right next to the captain's desk when I was, it was back in uh, 1995 before they'd renovated the buildings. But, but I never got the scoop on, um, on what was up with the CLO building. Um, Oh, good. Bearded Heretic agreed with my answer. Good. Thank you. All right. Let's bop through here, see if um, I can get to the end of this. Okay, good. Excyan, do you think that there will be a Scientology ad during the Super Bowl this year? Almost certainly there will. I mean, why break pattern? It's the only thing Miscavige does that seems to uh, promote Scientology in any way, really. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Holly. Okay. Will Philify, do you learn anything useful in Scientology? If so, what? I think it depends on what you bring into it, whether you would consider anything that you learn in Scientology useful. My answer to this is that anything that you're going to learn in Scientology that's going to be beneficial or helpful or of real value to your life is something you can learn anywhere else but Scientology. Hubbard drew from so many sources, most of them, you know, not so great. And, you know, those sources are still out there, right? In other words, like, for example, yes, you could learn something about how to speak better, communicate better, or how to uh, face your fears, or how to deal with life better or something. If you went in there as some, you know, kind of schmucky person who couldn't deal with things, then maybe some of the lower level classes might help you in some fashion. But the amount of abuse you're going to suffer at the same time is so much that you need to get the hell away from it, right? And this is always the sort of line I have to walk in answering questions about this is, yeah, sure, there's some good stuff in there. But the price you have to pay is not anywhere near an even exchange for those skills or for that that value you're going to get. Far better if you want to learn how to, uh, you know, have some communication skills to go to a, um, what do they call that? The the speaking thing, right? Where you can, um, uh, oh, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, if you go to a speaking group, if you did another communications course somewhere else, if you just went and practiced in the mirror for a while or something, you know, I mean, speak from experience, they, you know, you can develop these skills other ways is I think my point there. So, um, you know, yeah. Do you learn anything useful in Scientology? Sure. Uh, Yes, you do. You know, but, um, but the cost far exceeds the value. And that's, that's my take on that. Okay. Um, oh, good. Oh, cool, Chrissy. Great, great. Yes, I am feeling better. Thank you. Um, all right. All right. Let's keep going. Oh, another super chat. Sorry, I missed this one. Um, oh, 
Ken's channel. Why did you stop answering on Quora? The Scientologist answers are disingenuous, as you know, or they skirt around it entirely. Hey, it, a great question, Ken. Thanks for asking that. I wasn't aware anybody was even paying attention. I'm barely around on Quora. I, I pop in every now and again. Um, I answered a bunch of questions on Quora about two or three years ago, I think. And I really, you know, wrote some like essay sized answers on some of the questions that were asked. And I haven't really gone back since. I should probably take a day or two and, and go do that. Um, but that's the, the only reason why was time and interest. It's the only reason. If there's more questions there to answer about Scientology and stuff, I'll, I'll gladly go take a look and, and go pop in there. So thanks for, the, thanks for the nudge on that, Ken. That's a good one. Um, anywhere I can get, get good data on Scientology out there, I want to. And I know Quora is a, a, a fairly popular platform. Um, bipping. <laughs> Please tell me I'll run Hubbard use that term. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> bipping. Uh, um, okay. Oh, Juliana, but didn't we all come here to Earth on Xenu's coup or whatever? No, not all of us. No, 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 no. There were a bunch of us who were already here. Um, the, the, the tale of Xenu and the narrative of the galactic genocide is Earth was one of the populated planets of the Confederacy. There were billions of lives of souls here on Earth already. Then Xenu imported trillions more in this galactic genocide, and then he set off all the atomic weapons and put the energy fields in place to keep everybody locked here. So uh, that's that's the deal on that. Okay. Uh, good. So, yeah. Okay, good. Okay. Um, yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Okay, good. Popping on down here. Yes. Extra long stream. All right. I think we're getting toward the bottom, which is good. Toastmasters, that was it. Thank you, guys. That's it, Toastmasters. That's what I was thinking of on the speaking group. Okay. Um, Rocky Road, have you had any further problems with people using similar YouTube accounts and posting things? Not recently. Thanks for asking. No, haven't had that. I really hate that. Oh, I hate that. Uh, you, I have a couple of times I've had people come around trolling my channel with uh, an account that had my name with my picture. Oh, Start answering Quipel's questions with nonsense and gobbledygook and reference to porn sites and crap. That is just so annoying. Okay. Um, yes, yes. Okay, wow, we got to the bottom. All right. Good. So, um, okay, so now would be the time because I'm, I'm about to start wrapping up. If you guys have any more questions for me uh, or, of course, super chats you want to throw my way, uh, now would be the time I think I'm going to move toward wrapping up otherwise. Um, yeah, okay. Avoid posting chats when Andrew and Mark do. Or they could avoid posting chats when I do my live streams. Or whatever. People can catch it on the rebound. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I am confused by this question add-on. Hi, Chris. Hope this question is out. Can you explain the CAN course and van operations when they've got an SP who's been ID'd but never in COS? 
I do not understand your question. CAN course and van operations? I don't know what you're referring to there. Can you clarify that? Um, and Shimoda, thank you for that comment. Uh, I'm just doing the best I can. <laughs> thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't get that question out on. So if you can clarify that quickly, I will give my best shot at answering it. Um, oh, Greta, it's only because it's not true that Hubbard's writings can't be changed. That's the whole, that's the whole point of hypocrisy with Scientology is Miscavige has changed so much of L. Ron Hubbard's writings I mean, a lot, like way more than, than, than you guys might imagine that, I mean, Hubbard, if Hubbard came back today just for fun, right, and, and were to see what Miscavige has turned his subject into, I am almost positive he would want to chop off Miscavige's head. It is so different, and the emphasis and importances of Scientology are very different now from what Hubbard was pushing. In a lot of ways, a lot of very fundamental, basic ways. Like, for example, I'll give you one. Um, the emphasis on training uh, versus auditing and co-auditing. Miscavige just gives this stuff lip service. Hubbard was serious about it. He wanted Scientologists to not only get auditing, but he wanted them trained. In other words, indoctrinated in his theories, his ideas, his mindset. And that's what all those lectures and books are all about and all those courses are all about is getting you into Hubbard's mindset and keeping you there, keeping you trapped in this whole little dogmatic world. So Hubbard's emphasis on these things was actually a little bit more savvy and a little bit more canny than Miscavige's. Miscavige uses an awful lot of force. Hubbard was sometimes a little more subtle. So, um, so big differences there. Okay, um, so yeah, so it's kind of a lie that his writings can't be changed. And that's why the difference is, right, is because Miscavige can get away with making whatever changes he wants as long as he gives. Here's, here's the principle, okay, and this is a really important principle to understand. People will believe anything if you give them a good enough reason to believe it. There is no thing that you can imagine that is too outlandish, too bizarre, too crazy, too insane for somebody. Somebody could believe it if they were given a good enough reason to. And so people in Scientology will believe Hubbard's words can't be changed and that it is 100% on source. But no Scientologist has access to the L. Ron Hubbard archives to go verify that. They have to put their faith and trust in David Miscavige as the leader and believe that he has their best interests and in L. Ron Hubbard's instructions in his mind when he is making whatever decisions he's making in running Scientology. That's the faith they put in him. And that's why you'll hear, well, Hubbard's words can't be changed. They're sacrosanct. They're never, you know... Nah, that's not what's going on. Miscavige is making wholesale changes, but um, all to his advantage or to clarify or solve problems like pulling out references to people who have since been declared suppressive and stuff like that. So that's what that's about. 
Okay, next, John, ATAC chat. Win, please. Um, soon, very soon. Uh, not this weekend, uh, probably next weekend. We, we recorded it yesterday. Okay, um, I am in the middle right now of reading uh, The History of the Mafia. <laughs> I think it's called Five Families. I'm in the middle of that book. It's quite interesting. Um, little research on mafia structure and history um, because that's something that I'm um, interested in in comparing it to Scientology and destructive cults and how they tend to form their structures is it tends to be very, interestingly, it tends to be rather mafia-like. And, uh, and there's some parallels there, so I'm kind of looking into that. Um, okay, can course, Aaron mentioned it, and Van is the Victory Action Network, I think. Okay, um, still don't know what you're talking about there, add-on. Can you explain the can course and Van? No, I guess I can't. I, I really do not know, um, <laughs> I do not know what you were referring to, so I don't think I'd be able to explain that, because uh, I don't know what the Victory Action Network is. Um, all right. What do you think will happen when David dies? I guess you mean David Miscavige, atypical Paul. Um, what do you think will happen when David Miscavige dies? I've always said, and I will repeat here, it depends on the context in which it happens. I mean, does he die in prison? Does he die in his house with a whiskey bottle in his hand? Does he die in uh, holding those uh, copper cans or something? Where, is, where, where does he die? How does he die? Under what circumstances? I think it has a lot to do with what will happen. But um, regardless, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see. It won't be boring. I'll put it that way. I'll quote David Bowie for you on that. Um. Yeah, I'd love to see more collabos with Alex Barnes Ross. Very interesting for us UK people. Uh, sure, absolutely. I'd I'd love to do that too. Kind of went radio silent on me, so I'm you know if he wants to uh, reach out to me, I'm more than happy to do more with him. And I did see that he started his own channel, Shimoda, and I'm more power to him. I think that's awesome. Like I said, I want more. Sp I want more voices in this space. I really do. And I'm not I'm not trying to gatekeep this thing at all. I want everybody out there talking. Because uh, it's the only way we're going to get more attention to this, you know, and we really do need more attention if we're going to get that legislation and move the ball down the road to stop these groups, not just Scientology, but destructive cults in general. All right. Um, yeah, exactly. He's probably pretty focused on uh, on his channel now, as uh, Love Food Kitchen here says. I, th I think you're absolutely right. And again, more power to him. Okay. Oh, Cyprian too. Okay, cool. I'll let, I'll let him know. Uh, all right. Let's see what else we got here. Um, yes. Yes, I do. Do you think David Miscavige is beside all his cruelty a lonely person? I think David Miscavige, and I think that, to be honest, I think that people, you know, predators in general are all very, very lonely people. And um, I, I can't think of anybody who would be more alone even in a room of, you know, a crowded room of people, these individuals are unique and separate and different and, and alone from, uh, from everybody else. And I think that deep down they know that, feel that. I don't know that their mindset or, or base, you know, basic personality is such that they have 
lots and lots of regrets about that, but I think it's human to want connection, even if you're a predator. And uh, the fact that they can't get that connection ever is probably very, very frustrating to their ego and their sense of self and identity. All right, great question. And... Yeah. Okay, good. Um, Oh, it's COS dealing with the unhoused using a steaming news page somewhere. Streaming, I guess. Don't know. Don't know. Are you referring add-on to the video of some Scientologist hosing down a homeless person off the street outside of CCHR? That, that I saw. I don't know if that has anything to do with what you're asking me about. It's the only thing I'm making any connection to right now. Um, yes, I will absolutely do this, Exxon. Thank you for forcing me to promote myself because I don't do it enough. I do have a book out there. It was written a couple of years ago. Every word of it is still, as far as I can tell, uh, still valid and good. It is a critical analysis of Scientology. It is not my memoir. Uh, it's not my story. That's all just chapter one, just to sort of establish, you know, who I am and what I was doing in Scientology. But the book, Scientology A to Zenu, if you're interested in Scientology, I don't know another place to go where you're going to get more kind of packed information other than, I will say, other than Piece of Blue Sky by John Atack, which is the OG original text on, on Scientology. And if you haven't read A Piece of Blue Sky, it, you, you got to read that book. Um but I'll definitely put mine on that list too. So you can get that on Amazon. It's uh, That's where it's available. I've self-published in book form, audio form, uh, and electronic. All right. Uh, cool, cool. Anthony asks, was Miscavige a bad seed or can you pinpoint a moment he was corrupted? If it, Maybe somebody could, but I don't, I'm not privy to that knowledge. Um, I'm not familiar enough with David Miscavige's early life in the detail it would be necessary to be familiar with it in order to be able to make that call. And I'm not going to make that call because I don't know. Um, something happened to that guy. Uh, maybe a series, probably more likely a whole series of things happened to that guy. And um, unfortunately, it resulted in you know what we see today. Um, all right. You guys are so awesome. No, Shimoda asks, do you think David Miscavige has multiple affairs or concubines with Shelley out of the way and his lack of human connection is, as you said, I, I think he's asexual, to be honest with you. I don't really see Miscavige. Or if he's not, then maybe it's just him and Larice or something, his, his assistant. If anything is happening there, like I, I, he doesn't seem to be a sexual predator. And believe me, if there was anybody who was in a position to take advantage of other people around him sexually, it would be David Miscavige. But you got to appreciate the views on sexuality that he himself has created in Scientology. Every single Scientologist has some pretty tight sexual restrictions and ideas. Very, very 1950s kind of, kind of stuff. Um, and Miscavige and Hubbard started it, but Miscavige really took that to town and really emphasized it, where even masturbating is, a, is an overt. It's an actual kind of crime in Scientology. It's self-destructive as far as their, as from their dogmatic point of view. So, so Miscavige would have 
a not impossible time at all in um in making women succumb to him if he wanted that or assaulting women and and taking advantage of them and it very well could be that that has happened but we've had no indication that anything like that is going on in all of the stories and testimonials that we've heard. So that's, that's really all I can say about it from a factual point of view. My opinion is that he ain't a sexual creature. I, I, I just don't see it in him the same way you see it in, in other cult leaders. There's, there's interesting differences with cult leaders in this, in this area. Some are highly sexualized way overly sexualized. You almost wonder if they didn't get into it just so they could have endless amounts of sex. Other people, it's not about that. It's about money and influence and power, or it's about wetting their appetites, which are not sexual. They are violent appetites. And I see a lot more of that with Miscavige, according to everything we've heard and read about the guy, than I do sexual issues. Not trying in any way to deny that that could be a possibility, just saying, uh, you know, we don't really see it. All right. Oh, thank you. You guys are great. Um, oh, wow. Tokyo, Japan. God damn. Ah, this is great. Um, <laughs> yeah, you like my Zombievers t-shirt? All right. Um, yes, David Miscavige is very definitely, that's a wise comment. David Miscavige is very much a prisoner in a prison uh, that he built himself. That is very true. Um. Okay. That control. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That uh, that Ted Koppel interview that Miscavige did back in the day was was really quite something, wasn't it? It was very interesting to me because it was something, it was one of the milestones for me in coming out of Scientology to realize how far I had come that interview that Miscavige gave was something I watched as a public Scientologist. I mean, that was, what, 91 that that interview happened? And so I was like 20, 21 years old, right? I was just fresh off the boat, so to speak. Still a pretty new staff member. Just been on staff in Santa Barbara for a few years. And, um, and I watched that interview with rapt attention, and with, uh, you know, something akin to worship in my eyes for David Miscavige. I was totally taken with that guy uh, when I was in Scientology. I thought he was the leader of leaders, just like Tom Cruise said. We really believed that for a very long time. It took me years to be disabused of that, even in the Sea Org. And after coming out of the Sea Org and watching that interview again and seeing how incredibly different it was from my experience and memories of it back in the day, it was like, wow, that was a real benchmark for me to see how far I had come in getting out of that headspace. So I agree with you completely. He was, he was, it was awful. I mean, there were so, Ted Koppel was just having a field day with him. Okay. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. We've been at it for an hour and a half, and this has been a lot of fun. I have really enjoyed this one more than I have a lot of others. This has been fun. Um, so let's go ahead and wrap up now. Uh, I got a chance to give you guys this, <laughs> this group processing nonsense. Uh, just want to give you a taste of that. 
Germany. Awesome guys. All right. So let's, uh, let's, uh, let's call it quits today. It is Tuesday today. And I was going to be on another person's live stream today, but they had to cancel because they got sick. So that's how this came up. So I'm very, very happy it did. I've got interviews and other things lined up for the rest of the week. So I will see you. I will not be seeing you guys on Friday. We are not going to be doing our call-in show on Friday. I've got other plans came up that, can, you know, it was kind of like, well, I got to do this or this. And I went, you know, I'd really rather do this this week. So we're going to go do these other plans and I will um, pop back on Critical Conversations next week. But you will see a podcast this week. You will see a Q&A show next weekend as usual. And, um, and we'll proceed as uh, uh, forward from there. And if I can do more live chats during the week, midstream or whatever, I will try. I'm not at all going to get into daily content on this channel or something. It takes me uh, more time to put my stuff together than that. But I do very much appreciate you guys coming around and, and listening and watching. Uh, my book is on Amazon. I am available for consultation if you would like or need that uh, on a professional basis. I do not do therapy. I am not a psychologist, but I am. Uh, you know, an expert in coercive control, and I can absolutely help anybody on that line. So that's available to you guys. And otherwise, um, uh, well, I, that's all I got to say. So talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye.